Hello, I'm your host, Leonard Duncan. Welcome to a new episode of ATV Talk and Motorsports Podcast. Please join us every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We bring you interviews with industry professionals, live events, live news about the motorsports industry in every episode. Enjoy the show. Whether we are out riding with our friends and family or racing in extreme environments, we all need good tires. That's why I recommend GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Greenball Corp. Their products, which include XC Master, Mini Master, and Ground Buster 3, are what leading professionals in the ATV UTV industry are using. You can get your tires at greenballtires.com or find them on Instagram as GBC Tires for further inquiries. Are you looking for the best suspension technology for your sport ATV? Look no further than Elka Suspension, the industry leader in sport ATV suspension technology. With championship wins in prestigious events such as the Dakar Rally, SCORE, Best in the Desert, ATV MX, Cross Country, and Works, Elka Suspension has established itself as the go-to choice for athletes and enthusiasts alike. But they don't just stop at ATVs. They're constantly expanding into new markets, including UTVs, trucks, SUVs, pit bikes, snowmobiles, and more. Their commitment to innovation and quality means they're always looking to improve and adapt so you can enjoy a smooth ride wherever you go. Want to learn more about what Elka Suspension can do for you? Visit their website at elkasuspension.com or give them a call at 450-655-4855. They will always be happy to answer your questions and help you find the perfect suspension solution for your needs. Welcome to DBR Racing Products, the leader in 3D modeling and innovations. Since 2015, they have been revolutionizing the industry, starting with their groundbreaking YFZ450R battery boxes. But they didn't stop there. They have continued to push the boundaries, constantly improving their design with each new version. In 2018, they introduced the game-changing Vortex EXO cage, specifically designed to securely hold the Vortex ECU in a safe and sturdy location. This breakthrough innovation ensures your ECU stays protected even in the toughest racing conditions. At DBR, they understand that every detail matters. That's why they also offer an array of essential products to enhance your racing experience. Their spark plug hold downs keep your engine firing at peak performance while their LTR breather boxes ensure optimal ventilation for your machine. Their LT250 engine skid plates are a must have for those seeking unmatched protection. Engineered to shield your engine from impacts and rough terrain, they provide the ultimate defense for your ATV. But that's not all, they've developed ProPeg mounts that allow you to use TRX450R Nerf bars, giving you greater control and maneuverability on the track. To explore their full range of innovative products and learn more about DBR Racing, 
visit their website at www.dvratv.com. You can also reach them directly at 507-828-1233. Their knowledgeable team is ready to assist you with any questions or inquiries. DVR Racing Products, where innovation meets performance, unleash the power within you. Stevie Wright, welcome to ATV Talk, man. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Oh, dude, it's my pleasure, man. It's awesome. You know, when I started this whole gig, the whole thing was about history. Okay. So you being one of the, the early riders, you know, you were riding for, you know, uh, 3B and you rode for Honda and you, you know, you were even doing stuff with my dad back in the old 90 days. So I had to have, I had to have you on. And early on, I don't think a lot of people understood what I was doing, including yourself, you know, really, what's it all about? You know, blah, blah, blah. And I can understand why it took so long for you to come on is because you had to figure out what I was doing. Yeah. And I got to apologize to you for that. I I think I was just more nervous of, I am not comfortable in these environments of, you know, but hopefully you'll be easy on me today and (laughs) we'll just kind of chat and have some fun with it, you know? And, uh, uh, it was awesome talking to your dad and, I don't know. You know, I was thinking about it driving over here. It's been like 40, 45 years of my life. Yep. I'm 62 and uh, some just great, great moments. You were you just know? a kid. I was just, I won my first championship at Speedway 117, I think at 16. Right. I couldn't wait to get that. I think it was Speedway 117, get yep. that red championship jacket on a ATC 90. Right. And then my brother taking me to, the Pat Benatar concert the same night. And I thought <laughs> I was just living the dream, you know? And, <laughs> wow. And she's been around a while, hasn't she? Yeah. So so how did you get into ATVs? Well, I had motorcycles. I had a TS Suzuki. And I just thought they were different. You know, they were a little harder to ride, a little more challenging maybe. And... So I just kind of would have swap meets. I lived right by the swap meet. So I'd go around neighbors asking for all their junk. And then I just end up selling it, you know, and I got to buy me a three wheeler. So I just kept buying one. I got this, the 90, then I got a 185 and I just kind of just got really hooked on three wheelers. And then my buddies all raced to motorcycles and said, Hey, why don't you come out to South Bay Speedway? That's probably. 1975, 76, they're going to start a three-wheeler class. I'm like, oh, really? Because I was just a flag boy. You know, I'd go out there and flag for the motocross when the Dan Basile and all those guys ran the track. And then once I went down to Builders Emporium and got a number 33 precision tape, number plate, and taped it on my 90, and I was hooked ever since. (laughs) Uh, That's, I think that's, if I answered it, that I just... I loved three wheelers ever since. Isn't it amazing when you think back of all the names for all the early three wheeler racers? Most of them came out of Speedway One Seventeen. It is, you know, like it could be anywhere in the world, right? And that's a unique. As we'll get into that, where you know, I looked up to Dean Sundahl, and he lived 
maybe a mile or two from it. They were older than me and Mark Waxerdorfer and uh, they were just kind of the godfathers, you know, they, uh, yeah, they were just, they were it. They were it. They were it. Yeah. You know, the Sundal slide and you yep. just wanted to copy and those guys, you know, were, you know, they were it. And so they set the bar and we're just always chasing it. And uh, it's just crazy where the sport got that curve where it took off. Right. And, you know, like I said, when the first, I think, 80, 81, three-wheelers showed up and they had Mark and Dean ride it. Right. I think they pulled it out of a box van, Wes McCoy and a bunch of Honda engineers. And then we were like, wow, you know, this is a lot different than our little 90 right. toy, you know, that was we were having fun on. Well, it made it real. Yeah. And, you know, and then Honda did really take a deep dive into it and, and advance the whole sport. Uh, you know, talking to some of the older guys, learning that Husqvarna was on the verge of taking a big chunk and, and building a machine that was going to take over where Honda wasn't. And Honda couldn't have that. Yeah. It seemed like even in when I was doing Yamahas, they were showing like they wanted some of that pie, you know, but um, we could, I was dealing, we would, we were in what was called at Yamaha. I worked with the factory guys, but they were in special projects. So we were never under the race team. Right. So it was a guy named Mike Wilkinson and a guy named Rit LeFrancois. And they were just teasing me and giving me parts and discounts and to go try to get to the track and compete with the Hondas. So I always believed that, you know, they were going to be like Honda and, and start a team. Right. You know, they, they always led me that down that path. And um, they only made the Tri-Z two years, right? Yeah, I, I always called that what the Trimoto or the Tri Z. Tri Z was the two fifty. Yeah, Trimotos were the one twenty fives. And then we made an aftermarket at Brock Glover's shop, and put a YZ two fifty in it, right, to compete, and um, it was competitive with it, right. Um, Bob was it Ace, Ace Williams? I remember in Bob that Ace too? Williams. Yep, Bob Ace Williams, um, no longer with us. Um, but he actually gave me a, a break and uh, put me on that bike. And um, then, you you know, he had a bad accident. Right. Isn't that how Marty got out there? Was the And let me tell you the, the story, 3B? what I think of Marty, how he got out here. We, we were going to an Iowa National. Sometimes, you know, we were getting nationals now. Mm -hmm. Honda was putting them on. And Marty, I believe, was on a Yamaha, too. So we went back as a Yamaha trying to always be the underdogs. And I met, I met Marty there and we had a lot of time to chat. What, you know, we somehow got rained out is what I remember. And it's a crazy story. Um, got to chat with Marty and said, dude, you should come to California. You're, you're fast, you know, like, and I, I just had small talk with him, you know, cause you know, if you know Marty, he's pretty right. quiet and I'll be damned. He had to have been 17 and I remember him. He was like a senior in high school, I think. We'd have to ask him. And he had this blue Toyota truck. Yep. And he goes, I still talk to my kids about like that. If you know, always chase your dream. You know, my one son, my one son fishes. And you know, wherever, if you got to go to North Carolina with the best fisherman, then go. 
you know, I won't hold you back. And Marty, if you really think about what he did at 17, 18, he told us he was coming. And the next thing I knew, he's knocking on our door and he's here. Right. I'm looking out at the blue Toyota truck, bikes in it. And he was everything he owned was in it. Yeah, everything he owned. And then you really couldn't, we were young, but you know, he came from a, a one stoplight town. Right. You know, in, in a really, really, um, not that we were bad, you know, but you know how like Marty was real polite and, and really had a, loved his mom and dad, you know, reported into him every Totally day. different environment than yeah, we grew up. Yeah. yeah. But he, he just rebelled and left. And uh, you got to really um, respect that, you know, right. from a guy. And then he gets here and boom, he works his way on Honda um, before I do. And um, like you said, just the sport just kept, you know, they kept pointing it straight up, you know, like we maybe, right. I just, like I told you that one year, I think out of 48, it was 52 weeks in a year, we raced 46 and we were happy just to be home so we could go to Glamis, you know, and, one you know, weekend, yeah, one weekend, and, you know, and goof around, but, or get maybe one home cooked meal or something. But Honda had us going to New York, Alaska, Baja, um, everywhere, right? you know, cause they were, when as a writer, you participated in everything at that time. Yeah, there was no there was no specialist. No specialist like it is now. Right. Or somewhat, you know. Um, so that was kind of fun. You know, you'd race flat track, you'd race TT, you'd race the Baja one. I mean, like literally, we were at Lake George racing on ice, drilling studs and tires. You know, a guy from San Diego, you know, you have no idea what you're doing. What yeah. you're doing. And then the very next week we're in Baja racing Baja. So we were, it was a dream. It was, a you know, and getting paid to, to do for, that, to do that, you know, you're, you have time now to look back at it. That's, that's so, so grateful for that. And they let you guys from talking to uh, Mark and Mike and Marty, they let you guys do a lot of the development stuff and, and winging it on your own with figuring it out. Mm-hmm. They did. They gave us a lot of leeway. Like, I maybe at that time had a lot of support, but like Tracy Dixon and Bob Dixon, his dad was a really well-known fabricator like Nick Nicholson. Right. And they would all spread it around and they would try to make different chassis for us or suspension parts or whatever to just always keep developing the bike. Right. And, um, and it, it, it worked out good. I remember, I remember we, you know, Danny's Machine Works, yep. and it was Johnson Bug, and we'd go into Johnson's, and we never had the frames, but they always had the freaking Nicholson frame sitting there. Yeah. And back when you wanted a, a ninety one ten, you know, because that was the coolest thing ever. Yep. I mean, I always looked at those frames. God, I gotta have one of those. Gotta have one of those. I never got one. Lauren did, but I ended up getting into the two fifty models. You know, where yeah. because that's what was available at that time. Yeah, I think that that one we all wanted that Nick Nicholson made was might have been a Bandito. Yep, that was the, I, that know, was so the yeah, shit like right there, man. Every every kid wanted one of those. And then remember driving around East County here, Oklahoma Lakeside, right going into the eighties. Didn't it seem like everybody had a three wheeler in the back of their truck? Yep, and you could I go mean, ride in the Santee Sand Pits. 
you could there was places here in Lakeside you could ride you could ride everywhere and I mean I didn't go and ride a lot of those places because that's just not what dad would allow but you know he would take us occasionally and I was a little, I'm a little bit younger than you are so I was still a little bit behind the curve you know and but I still remember all of that stuff because yeah. you get to, you got to talk to your friends about it and, and hear about it. And, uh, you, you know, I, you're taking, you're also looking at it. I got to look at up, you know, you were talking about how you looked up to Sundahl and, and the older guys. Well, I got to look up to all of you guys because I was still, you know, five years behind you and you know, the Sundahl slide poster was on the shot. I think we have it rolled up somewhere yeah. in some of the archive stuff that we have kept for over the years because that was just the coolest stuff. Yeah. You know, the yeah, remember the Honda attitude? Yeah. 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 I mean, it just, uh, their whole win ad, you know, and yep. the way they built it around kind of wax and Sundahl to start it. Yep. Um, the agency, you know, they were, they were doing a good job. And, and, you know, Dean being Dean became an East County legend, you know, and he got to race in places that I don't even think you guys all got to race. Yeah. Cause he went to Australia and, and did some stuff like that. And dude, it's just, yeah, you guys lived the perfect time in the ATV world. Yeah. It was like my college. Cause when I got, hired by Honda, it was like travel in the, like everywhere. Like you'd go down to Elko and travel and you go, yeah, I need a ticket to Alaska. And you had no idea, you know, even had a, you know, like once I got to the racetrack, I was the calmest, but it was just getting there, you right. know, getting the airplane. Then when we got there, the rent a car, like, Hey, you know, how do we get there? And it was things like that that would stress you out, you know, right. but you couldn't let anybody know that. Right. Because you had to, you know, you had to, you know, you had to stay composed, your, stay composed, get your first credit card and just Honda would reimburse you. And yeah, they just would give you your schedule and you got to be there. Right. They didn't care. But Don't be was, late. But it was great where on Yamaha's, you know, like Marty and I, we were driving to all the races. But the minute you get picked up by Honda, that was the perk. You know, we basically flew everywhere. So that made it nice. You know, once the. The, the I think more like in 85, they had like kind of a a coast to coast, called it the the GNs, you know, the Grand National Championship. Right. So you know, we could race here and then we would race it Gainesville, Florida, Dade, Dade, Miami, you know, the whole series would go all over the country. And David Eckert and I think Honda had, you know, Honda was really putting the money behind that to to make the sport grow. And yeah, and it did. It did. I mean, they they did amazing things. Uh, you know, I've talked to Mike uh, numerous times. He's been on the show quite a bit. Michael. Yep. Yeah. It, it, you know, like just like you sitting standing and talking with Dad. Every time Mike comes over, or when Mike and Wax come over, Wax has got a truck like Dad's. So they, they always, you know, start talking about all the things that I wasn't privy to, and the shops that were in town then, and and just the things that you could be exposed to. In Southern California at the time, you know, from the driveline place or that guy that was building car heads and, you know, just all the cool stuff that was going on here in Southern California that that I don't even think that most of the fans or the kids today even get 
how cool some of this stuff was. Yeah. And um, it, it's just great listening to you and dad talk. It, 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 it was awesome. But where I was going with the point on that is, at least I lost, I lost track of where I was going, but that's right. you know, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up in there somewhere. Um, it, it's just so cool to hear the stories of what you guys got to go do. And, and, you know, like you said, you were 22. Yeah. Was that, that's when you signed with Honda? It had to have been 22, 23, you know, and it was. Did you have a three-year stint with him or a two-year stint? Uh, three, maybe four. I know I won the championship, the one that my most, I cherished the most in 1985. Okay. We won the desert and then we won. Remember, there was only four bikes built in the country that Japan sent over and they were a 200 R water cooled. Yep. And I you was, raced one of those. I raced one of those. And I, that my, you know, when you just get a bike that fits you well, um, Marty was winning everything at the time on the 250. We were living together a lot at the time I was on that 200. So we trained together. We helped each other. And I just had the best year of my life on that 200. You know, and that's when they broke it away from the four strokes. Right. And there was a lot of competition in there. And I was just so happy that that was probably I consider because I wish I, I, if anything I could have, I wish I had that bike sitting right here, you know, because there's only four of them. Right. And then 86, I believe I got picked to transition. That's when the four wheeler came out. And then we first time we debuted it at Parker off road race. It won, and they got a win ad. So, because Honda's like, you know, hey, first time we got it dirty, it sweeped up. That right. was, you know, big time for them to beat the Suzukis. Right. Because Suzukis have been out for two or three years. Right. So, Honda coming right out of the gate and winning the first off-road race. And then uh, I was picked to do the short course. And um, that was tough. You know, I didn't – I – don't know where to start at the beginning or the end if it was I did it one or two years. But I know I lost the championship. I'll never forget. I had it sewed up if I just finished at San Antonio. If we go back and look at the records and Marty had already won the, the 250, you know, three wheeler. Mm -hmm. And we had this kid. Right, I was like 23, you know, Rodney 24, Gentry. and Rodney Gentry was like 18 and the kid was fast. But he crashed, so I think I was more consistent. He was faster than me, but I was going to win the first year on a four tracks. I had the championship, and clutches never break or whatever. I was so upset at the time, going through the hoops, and the thing just quit. And the only way I could lose a championship that year, I lost my bonus. You know, I was thinking that was ten thousand dollars, and I was already you know had the money spent, and and uh, it was the last race of the year too. I think we had an eight or ten race series. And um, if you look back, that was kind of, that was a low spot. Yeah. And then I believe, jumping forward, 87, you know, that's when the sport, I think, started falling apart. 87, you Honda might pulled. know. Honda, Honda pulled, pulled, pulled out. Yeah. yeah. That's when we got that death call. I think I had two years left on my contract. And um, that was just, I think all of us handled it differently. You know, you just remember Barbara Walters. 
Um, did they know, did they pay those contracts or um, did they I, cut you guys loose? I think they just cut us loose and didn't pay. Yeah, and you know it was a it was a it was a bad deal. You know, like because you're just you're living life. You know, you're like this, this is no way this is happening. You know, it's like that's where you don't get too high on the highs and don't get too low on the lows. But I just remember it was it went that was. Devastating, and then it just went worse when all the attorneys are knocking on our doors, you know, trying to get us to testify because there was just so many lawsuits. And I just didn't want to go down that path. So that's kind of when, and I was a little injured. I had ripped my muscles off my scapula. And, you know, your attitude's in the shitty, shitty, because, you know, you're everybody's done. And uh, I think, you know, so that's when I decided I was a little bit not into it and a little bit hurt. And I wanted to turn one of my sponsors that I saw a demand for Life's a Beach Clothing. And that's when I opened up my first store. So I kind of put basically my heart and soul into that. And um, and then didn't even really, it felt like forever, like 10 years even, you know, even Think really ride it. or anything. You know, I was kind of depressed about how it ended right when it just could go like that so everybody out there you know you know you never know when life's gonna throw you a curve right and right like literally changed overnight don't you think like it did it we did got the call you know it did and you know like a, a, what i was gonna say is i was talking to mike and he goes in 85 he wins the race back east uh, you know, he's on a super high, you know, just one. He's freaking great. And then he watches 60 minutes and they're destroying three wheelers. And he just knew right then we're done. Yeah. He said, that's going to, that's going to, that's going to destroy it. Yeah. And, and it ultimately did um, because three wheelers in 86 ended. And then in 87, you know, they, I think Marty was the only one that got a support deal. Yeah. And, and I think that's when he met your brother, Lauren. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't know the story. I, I love the story. I think I have my version, but, you know, like. So we had the, um, it was a Saturday. Mm -hmm. And we were out at Danny's Machine Works, which was down on Prospect Avenue. And uh, the only bike we had out was the 82 250R. And we had an IRS machine where it had, you know, a rear suspension and it had a 200X front end on it. A really cool machine, hard to ride, but, but really cool for the day. I mean, it was awesome. And Marty drove by and seen it on his way to the dump. And he stopped and talked to Lauren and said, hey, I got to go to the dump. I'll, I'll be back. So he goes to the dump, comes back. And then him and Lauren talks for hours, it seemed like. And I didn't know who Marty was. You know, you see everybody with the helmet on. You don't know. You know yeah. I knew you were. I knew Dean was. But because you guys had came in the shop before. Yeah. But Marty had never came into our shop before. And um, he leaves and Lauren goes, you know who that was? I go, no. He goes, that was Marty Art. And I go, no way. Yeah. You know, and and uh, he goes, yeah. And then all of a sudden it just it just manifested into the deal. And, and um, they became friends. They went to the, you know, they, they got to go race for the year. Well, they didn't even get the year because the box van got stolen. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. The box van got stolen with the two bikes in it and all really? the cool stuff and, and all the stuff that most people never seen before, 
you know, some of the cool stuff that yeah. you guys got to play with. Yeah. And um, I didn't even know what I was looking at back then. And uh, nowadays, you know, I, I think I think we still have one of the steel clutch baskets that they made that Honda made for yeah. you guys. Um, so there's so, so there's so much cool stuff that went on. I mean, what, what's your how did your story break down with that? Similar to that where I didn't know how he stopped by there and met him, but you guys from a local level, you know, were always really popular. You, Lauren, especially your dad, you know, mm-hmm. your dad being the kingpin, and then Lauren really everybody knew. And then when I heard Lauren and Marty were gonna take the box van and maybe get parts or something from Honda and go still chase the dream, right? Right. Um, I thought, you know, and then maybe you can explain too, you know, remember Marty and I both, but mostly him, but we had a private track out here um, off of Descanso where Paul Turner, I want to know then like how you guys like, we knew Paul Turner was really smart engineer, but he didn't like to deal with customers. Right. So somewhere along the line, Lauren. Lauren hooked up with Paul and got the distribution. And obviously, let's if I'm tell me if I'm wrong, but everybody wanted Paul Turner stuff, even after the sport. Kind of, we thought like we're out of it. And we think it's dead. And it was still huge. And it was huge, right? You know, like missed the point. But Lauren and you guys stayed in there, and um, just I would. Am I wrong? But but that so, Paul Turner sold more pipes than probably anybody. We're right? still selling them. Yeah, we're still selling yeah. them. And um, in in eighty seven, Lauren and Paul met. Okay. And Lauren being on the road for the times that he got to be on the road, got to spend time with Paul. You know, obviously Lauren already knew how to machine stuff and already knew how to port, but he didn't know how to port like Paul Turner ported. And Paul sat him down and helped him with some stuff and showed him some tricks, and they became friends instantly. And um, you know, those three mountain bike together. And Lauren's not a mountain biker. If you know Lauren at all, he's yeah. not going to go. That's not his forte. And he said, they're out in Colorado mountain biking and Lauren's giving it all he got. And Paul rides up behind him and puts his hand on Lauren's lower back and pushes him up this hill as they're riding, you know, and, and Paul just says, keep pedaling. We'll, we'll get this. Yeah. And, and um, so Paul not being the businessman and Lauren being the businessman, they, formed a partnership and Paul, not a lot of people realize how Paul, Paul Turner was a genius. Yeah. Yeah. He still is. I mean, super brilliant man. Um, He had a notepad next to his nightstand. This is how I was told. Paul and I are, have probably said 12 words to each other the whole time. You know, this whole thing's been going on. But he had a notepad next to his bed and supposedly he got up in the middle of the night and drew the rock shock thing. Got up the next morning, built it, and th- the rest is history. Yeah. You know, rock shocks being a multi-million dollar company yeah. and and then him not wanting to do the ATV stuff anymore. And Lauren and him made a deal and you know, Lauren owns Paul Turner and yeah. and we kept the name because Paul Turner racing is bigger than Duncan racing. Yeah. And now it's the opposite. But um, yeah, we still sell a ton of Paul Turner parts. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. I remember, I think I agree with you. I think I've been blessed to meet a lot of smart people. 
And Paul's definitely in that really elite group of just, you know, he's just like a genius. Like we would be out, Marty and I'd be testing at this track right out here outside of, you know, right off of Highway 8. Mm -hmm. And Honda had hired Paul on just a, a contract to consult. And that's when Marty had a good program going. Steve Carter, Marty, and Paul, and they all three worked good together. And I think he was out there like, you know, they had those front suspension, like rock shocks, pre-production stuff. And it was fun to hear later on that, you know, it's always fun to sell something that he sold that. And then we knew he was working on a fully suspended. And then I think it's been about eight or 10 years. Wes McCoy and I were in Hawaii and we got to go visit him up on his ranch and he just, he's so off the grid and everything he built himself, you know, he's like a genius. Like, you know, he just puts his mind to whatever he's into and he like built the shop and built everything in it, you know, by hand, yeah. you know? And then now I'm, I was wanting to give him a call, but now he's doing agave and trying to do a tequila, you know, okay. is, is what I hear. Honestly, because he has hey, like, Paul, oh, if you listen to this dude, you need to call me. My father-in-law that's how my father-in-law made his living. Not only did he sell tequila, he grew. Oh, and, and I believe Paul's grown it. Yeah, so so my wife is from Guadalajara, and the tequila train is in that area, and all the guava, or however you say it, is all grown in that area, and it's huge. There's Their whole family is into it. And um, a few years ago, we were supposed to – uh, start investing in in a, in some fields. Um, I don't know if we are or not. My wife handles that with her family, and but it's it's cool because you go out there and you get to see things where they're growing it. And uh, yeah, so you've been out to Campo, right? Yep. Okay. Well, you go to Campo and you walk around Campo and you look at Campo. When we go down to Guadalajara, where my wife's parents' home is, you'd think you were in Campo. Really, it's the same same plants, same trees, same cows, trails. All it all looks identical. Wow, you know, and you're in Guadalajara. That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty. I love going down and, and spending time down there. My uh, the people are just fantastic. I mean, you spend a lot of time in Mexico, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baja's a whole different animal. It's, yeah, it's amazing, fun. isn't it's it? Fun. I'm getting excited. Uh, When's the thousand? The thousand. I leave next Tuesday, mm -hmm. and I haven't chased a motorcycle in about nine years, maybe ten. Mm -hmm. I did Johnny Campbell's team ten years in a row, nine nine years in a row, and then when Honda pulled the plug on Johnny, I transitioned into Team Vidosla, which raced trophy trucks. So I've had like an eighteen year stint this last eighteen years, and I've been can't believe it's gone by so fast. I've been chasing Tavo in a real top-notch team. I've been really fortunate to work for really good people. Mm -hmm. And I'm really, and right now, Mark Samuels, you probably heard of, he's going to won the Baja a couple of times, I'm sure multiple times. I'm going to fly for him for the beginning of the race. And then I'm going to get off him, fly to San Felipe, then wait for Tavo to come up in the morning and then go, bring Tavo to the finish line. So it's going to be a long day and uh, I'm excited about it. Does anybody ride with you in the helicopter and how does yeah. it work? Paramedics. 
um, mostly is the main thing is safety for the helicopter, you know, especially on a motorcycle, you know, you want to kind of get a paramedic there and get them stabilized. And then we call in score and they bring in the helicopter to move them around. But um, I was real fortunate that for the nine years, you know, those motorcycle guys and everybody going backwards on the course and the booby traps and those guys are so fast. But I, I got to tell you, I, I think we, in nine years, we were just pretty lucky and blessed, mm -hmm. but preparation. Um, Ogilvy we, was the we, man, wasn't he? Yeah. And Ogilvy, I think Johnny Campbell will tell you, he learned everything from Bruce Ogilvy. And I, when Marty and I got thrown into Mexico, I got Bruce Ogilvy's dad, Don Ogilvy, to take me around. So, you know, my learning curve went up because, you know, our asses would be hanging out. I'm going, come on, Don, man, we don't got a pre-run today. Nope. Eight o'clock, be in that van. And, you know, and he dragged me and Marty and all of us. And, you know, that was Bruce's dad. Mm -hmm. So I felt really honored that I got to learn Baja from really some of the best. And being down there now, still, Bruce died, you know, years ago. But uh, um, Larry Rosser's still down there. And he picked me up a few times. Down a, One time down in La Parisima, I got blown in one of those cactuses. And you know how those are. Oh. And Larry had, was, I think, on a Husky. And he had we were in front of him. So he had some time to come over and check on me. And, you know, we pitted every 50 miles. And that's how I met Larry. You know, he, you're out in the middle of nowhere. And that was really nice of him to, you know, I didn't know where I was. And, you know, I, I got the bike into the pit and they made their repairs and the next guy took it. But um, uh, lots of lots of close calls down in Baja, as you as you know. Which, you know, I was very fortunate when my Baja stand came, I only raced in Mexico one time and I raced through the best in the desert series that with the one race they had down there, I didn't, didn't go race Baja. You know, we were scared of it. And now I would think that ridiculous. Yes, there are things, but if, if you take all the proper precaution and do your, your work, you're going to be okay. I got to spend my time as the, 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 like the crew chief chase guy. And I would prepare the machine. I would come down. I would work with Craig Christie on logistics and he would have it. He'd usually because of uh, Google maps and everything, he'd have it all laid out, mapped out where everybody was going to yeah. be. And <clears throat> so the two fifty, you know, San Felipe, how many pits can a guy make? Yeah. I can make all but the remote pit in a truck and, Nobody else did, but I did. You know, I'd go all the way to the top, come all the way to the bottom, meet in the middle, and then go to the finish. I don't and, know. What and, and that was just driving <laughs> because I, oh, dude, I was a freak. I had to see my bike. I had to know. Yeah. You know, I just had to know. Did you speak the language? I'm married to a, a, a Mexican, and uh, she speaks fluent Spanish. It's her first language, and I speak nada. Yeah. I, I, I'm like still saying after all these years, I got Paquito, you know, very little. And that, that that's a little, you know, it's not comfortable. Even well, when I'm getting ready to go down next week, it's still a hindrance that because I can't communicate. 
when I have well, a problem. Well, you can't. But you can. You just. You know? <laughs> I mean, I've traveled all over. I've got. I've been blessed too to go all over the world, and most of the teams that have hired me out of the country. If you have an English speaking team, you got lucky. Yeah. You know, I've went to teams that all they did is speak uh, Polish. I've went to teams that all they spoke was um, Spanish. And, you, you know, you just grunt, hand a wrench, you know, do whatever and, and, and you figure it out. And um, my wife, the, the odd thing about it is with my wife, when I met her, I understood her and I understood her Spanish. I do not and did not understand Spanish. I mean, when people are talking, I don't get it. When she talks to her daughter, talk to her sisters, I'm out because I don't get it. But I've been very blessed to understand my wife. So when she talks, we can have a Spanish-English conversation. Oh. Blows people's minds because then they'll talk to me in Spanish. I'm like, what? You yeah. said what? And they may have said the exact same thing she did. I just don't understand it. So Interesting. Now we're bringing the translator out, right? <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> uh, we, well, it was, it was kind of funny. We were down and she's going to nursing school in Mexico. And she had me come down to be her patient. And uh, that's an experience all on its own. And, and her and the girls were all talking. And I understood what they were saying. So I was kind of happy that I've been around enough to where I, I didn't catch every word, but I caught enough. And um, I deal with quite a few people from Mexico. So, so I, I, I can understand enough to get by. Can I say anything? No, I can't speak it at all. So <laughs> That's awesome. But I, I love Mexico and I love going down and just there's just so many things that you can be blessed to get a chance to go there. I know it's much different now than it was for when you guys did. Yeah. But I feel like I'm really lucky now that I could race it for all those years and then now flying the helicopter. You know, I got the best seat in the house kind of. Right. You know, with not the risk factor and just watching. Well, I wanted to ask you a question about the helicopter. You know. We're taking a race truck or we're taking a quad. We're taking our, our ATV, our motorcycle, whatever. And we're, we're tearing it to the frame and we're rebuilding it, going through the whole thing, making sure the motor's perfect. Do you get that extensive with the helicopter as well? Yes and no. It, and aviation works a little different. There's 50-hour, 100-hour inspections. So the mechanics come over and go thoroughly from top to bottom through it. And it just got out of that. You know, every time we go to Baja, we'll go through and do inspections. So it's like a prep. So we do. And everything, let's say there's 56 moving parts on it. Mm -hmm. Everything has time components, you know, when it's out. Like how you'll know maybe the manufacturer doesn't tell you, but you know from your knowledge, hey, that ball joint needs to be switched after, you know, 26 hours. Right. You know, you know things like that. I, I see trophy truck guys talk about. But guys try to make it longer, and then they break. Right. Where helicopters, no. Everything, it could be perfect in, your, in my mind, but you're still buying it. That's why they're so expensive to operate. Yeah, because uh, when the ball joint breaks, you, you pull over, and you get the tools out, and yeah. you put another one in. Yeah. When the engine breaks or you have a problem in the helicopter, yeah. you hit the ground, and, and, and you're done. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they know... The manufacturer set a limited, you know, a lifetime on it, and you're just changing parts all the time. Is it the same helicopter as you started with? It is. I bought that helicopter in 2005. That's kind of when the dream started. 
and went down in 2005 and just was a backup helicopter to a guy that was following Team Honda. So I had Wes with me. Bruce Ogilvie was down there, Johnny Campbell. So we were just kind of taking the second rider. And then that year, at the end of that year, that guy wanted to retire. So then that's how I got the call. And I slid right in. And then perfect, because of my background of racing, and Johnny and I, we kind of meshed. And we, he's just amazing. I don't know if you know Johnny Campbell. Like, I think is just walks on water when it comes to logistics. He, like Bruce Ogilvie, you know, he he really, I learned a lot from him. And it makes, you know, when you're organized. Because he learned a lot from Ogilvie. Yeah. And I've learned a lot from now. Johnny, I was on the phone with Johnny yesterday going, Johnny, my plan don't feel right to me. You know, can you give it your blessing? And what would Bruce Ogilvie do? We're doing a peninsula run. Because I always told him Backwards, yesterday. Though. Yeah, yeah. And then I said, we were fortunate I don't know if he told Marty this, but uh, we were pretty proud of ourselves in 85 and 86 when we were the, I believe, three motorcycles beat us and we were like four or five. You know, that right. means beating Ivan Stewart, Walker Evans, you know, right. Corky McMillan, Mark. But yeah, they broke or whatever, but we- You still beat we, them. We, we still beat them. Yeah, to finish first, we, you must finish. We, we, you yeah, must finish. yeah. You know, we were up there when- not many years before that, everybody laughed at it, laughed at three wheelers. Right. You, know, you guys are crazy. You, you know, you still are. You, you guys are crazy. But that was still to this day, when you look at that win ad and you look at our times, that was just an unbelievable special day. And, um, but it was loop races, I believe. So Bruce Ogilvie, you know, he, he was, you know, a really quiet man. And he come up to me one day after I'm like, yeah, we won the ball two years in a row. And he goes, let me just tell you, Steve, you're not a man until you do a peninsula run. <laughs> and I'm like, just took all the air out of my sail. So, you know, because they only ran peninsula runs, what, every three uh, or four years? There's so many, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was just real special. And I never won one in uh, a peninsula, you know. Did broker. you ever get to race one? Yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, we did. I think Marty and I and all at the end, when we knew we were just getting fired, we got the news in November, but we're like, you know, let's go still race it. And uh, we did. And then I think we got down to Constitution and uh, never, you know, you know, they don't go out. But uh, it was just the main seal went out in the in the crankshaft. And we just decided, you know, we were already kind of wounded, you know, so we just you know, parked it in the van and drove home. But uh, other than that, I don't believe we DNF too many races, but uh, never. If things never, might've been different, you might not have yeah, DNF that one. Yeah. And then, you know, we wanted to be, I think Sundall that year was on a Banshee. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we want to still prove our point that, you know, that we, we could beat them still. And, um, but uh, I, I, I don't, I don't, I just remember, it was just a real negative time. But the point of Bruce saying a peninsula run like it is this year, mm -hmm. it, it is really logistically a nightmare. And this first time. Backwards. Right. First time backwards. So my first full stint in Baja was to Cabo. Really? 
So I woke you right up. I didn't get to go do the 250. I didn't get to go do the 500. So I'm working with Doug Eichner. We were having our normal, you know, Duncan owned bike deal. And it comes to an, an abrupt end in, you know, September of 07. And Craig Christie calls me and goes, you're building my bikes. You know, why don't you, I need you to do this race. You know, what's it going to cost? I gave him a price. And he says, hands me a check and, you know, gas money and says, let's go. And I loaded my tools in the truck with no idea what I'm doing and um, ended up, ended up not taking my vehicle, ended up gotten their vehicle and um, had just an incredible time. You know, did you guys pre-ride? They did. Not you. I didn't because I found out, I found out like right before the race to, to, were, to do this. Yeah. And, um, you know, my brother, Lauren, you know, I've worked for him for all these years and I've come to him last minute more than once. Hey, I got this opportunity and um, I really want to go. And he's like, how long are you going to be gone? Well, I'm leaving tomorrow. And what? <laughs> you know, with no time to prepare and we just get on a plane or get in a truck and go. Yeah. And he would let me do it. And and he did. And I was gone like freaking a little over a week, you know, yeah. just to go down and back. And uh, it was incredible stuff. Craig Christie uh, took me all over, all over Baja and the deal was with that, I got home from, um, in 2000, that was in 2007. In 2009, it was another to La Paz. I got home from La Paz and got on a plane and went to South America for the Dakar. Oh, I was going to ask you if you ever did the Dakar. Yeah, I didn't do it in Africa and I didn't do it in Saudi. I got to do it in, in South America. Um, but I got to do the first one in 09 in South America. And, yeah. and it was, um, they talk about it's 14 days and 13 days yeah. and 12 and nine. We did a 17 day race. I always, once we won everything here, you know, and my, you know, you keep pushing. I was pushing Honda always going, we've won Baja 1000s and 500s and everything. Me, you know, like, Let's go. You know, I want to go Paris to Dakar because, you know, the BMW, Gaston Rahir and all the guys would come over and we'd beat them on a three-wheeler, you know, because we'd watch them and they wouldn't know. You know, you see a bunch of Mexicans on the hill, you know, and they would dig those speed bumps, you know, where and they go in them and you felt so bad for them. You know, that big old BMW laying over and you'd see the guys and they look like I'm just and I'd go by. But uh, and then those guys, you know, we'd beat them. They're like, man, we win the Paris to Dakar. And we can't win we, here. We can't believe we got beat by a three wheeler. You know, you know, like they were. Well, the big thing about the Dakar is, is when you did it in Africa, is, is you had to carry all your fuel. You had to carry all this stuff, and then your support vehicle was this big old giant man truck, and it had to carry everything. I mean, that's where you stepped. It kept you alive, yeah. really. And um, you know, they had active gunships protecting those guys because there was all kinds of shady stuff went on that in Africa that they didn't talk about, you know, and I, I, there's stories that you hear so about. you got to travel a lot. Yes, I have. I love it. I, Is that the same place that like Brabeck's running now? Is it the same area? No, now he's in Saudi. Okay. Okay. But I think yeah. he got to run 
in South America. 21. Mm, I don't remember what year he won. Yeah, like three or four years ago. If I think he won in South America. Okay. I'm, I'm not. I lost track of it I a little remember bit. Remember, I started getting backtracked because I thought it was cool that they hired Johnny, you know, to be a team manager. Right. And so I followed it and got back into it, and he was the first American to win. And Caselli well, was favored to win, unfortunately, and then he died. You know, if yeah. it, that that following Dakar, he probably would have won yeah. because I was at the one the year before with him, and and not with him. I tell this story. He says, when we sat down to eat, we're, you know, that far away from each other. Not that we knew each other, not that we were on the same team. It's just when you go to, to dinner, it was just a mishmash of everybody just sitting wherever they sat. Yeah. And sometimes the Americans would tend to sit near Americans because that, you know, just the way it worked out. Yeah. And, uh, and I knew Caselli, knew of Caselli because of works. You know, and all I got to follow him, and that year we were battling. Um, probably, Sam, probably one of the last guys that probably saw him alive. Mm -hmm. He he was thirty seconds. So I I could be in the helicopter, and Caselli was there. I believe it was Colton Udall here, and he knew he had to win by like a minute and a half or something. You know, that's mm -hmm. those guys are always within a minute of each other, and. Uh, um, and not even knowing, Colton just came over a cattle guard and tackled a front tire. But so we just go, we lost the race. And then we got, you know, he got the tire fixed, got going, and Chuck Miller said, No, you're the first bike. So in between that area we were talking, that's where Caselli crashed. Mm -hmm. And um, to this day, I still don't even know, you know, if it was a cow or. Or what happened? There's so many speculated stories, and I don't even want to tell you what the things that I know. Yeah. That, uh, you know, I can tell you this, that I got a phone call probably before anybody knew, knowing what, that, that he was gone. And, um, and because one of my guys was there. Oh. And um, I'm working out and we're watching it on the computer and I'm drinking... You know, pushing, pushing, pushing some iron, you know, and my buddy's screaming, you know, Castelli stopped, Castelli stopped, Castelli stopped, you know, and and my phone rang. I picked it up. Hey, what's up? And he tells me, and he goes, I got to go. And you can just tell by the, the way he's, he was just mortified and uh, got off the phone. And, and uh, it was horrible because we didn't find out exactly for two days really yeah. uh, even though it came out on facebook and social media you know and unfortunately that's how his mom found out you know yeah. and and just the guy was phenomenally fast he's a fantastic motorcycle racer right. motorcycle rider and and he did it from you know if you look at i know we're off track here a little bit but if you look at his early career you'd have never thought that kid and that guy would become the man that he was because yeah. um, he was with KTM, riding KTMs at works when I started and long shaggy hair, you know, kind of disheveled to clean cut, super fast on the gas, you know, yeah. eating right, doing all the right stuff. And um, just, you know, utmost respect 
from a guy like me watching that. It just, you know, not that I'm a KTM fan, but I was a, a Kurt Caselli fan for sure. Yeah. yeah. I've heard nothing but good about him. Yeah. Just phenomenal guy. Phenomenal guy. And, and anybody that knew him. And then he was working with um, Ivan. Uh, to, uh, I can't think of his last name. Ramirez? But, uh, in, in Mexico. I think Ivan Ramirez. And that guy was, they got a video of them guys bouncing through the desert with each other. And he was almost as fast as Caselli. You know, I don't know. I do know that the effect of him passing devastated, you know, KTM USA. They were, you know, they were moving and then that happened and it just. You notice then kind of everybody pulled out. Yeah, there was a massive problem. They didn't want to say it was that, but then I want to believe maybe the next year, maybe one more year than Honda, you know, I had to move on, you know, because they pulled out. Right. Are they back? Is Honda back? No. It's just a support deal? Support deal. Yeah, so it's not even the factory. Yeah, Johnny talked to him yesterday. He's just still balls deep and, um, you know, for the the car rally, you know, testing, testing, testing. Yeah, because they want to they want to own that. And and I get it because, you know, but but if you go down and you watch, if you go as a spectator or you get to go, KTM is dialed. They have it. They own it because the, the, the bike comes in or their factory guys come in. Bang, bang, bang. Instantly, they roll into the deal. They wash the bike. That bike goes to the frame and up. And by two o'clock, the tents up, closed. The bike is sealed off. You're not touching it. Nobody's going near it. And their mechanics are sleeping. The riders are sleeping. And, you know, they're back at four in the morning and gone. You don't, you do not see the factory guys there late at night. You don't, you just don't see it. And because they have, they have the system down. They have every part they need. You You know, other than the frame and the engine cases, I'll bet you that bike is totally rebuilt multiple times through that race. Yeah. Um, uh, Como and I forget the other guy's name were doing it when I, when I got to go and watch those guys. And there was a dog fight between the two KTM guys. And every time I think like eight, nine years, Cowie came in, KTM came in. It amazed me that you could go 500 miles and the, whoever the winner would be, you would be within one minute. Right. Like, it, that's still luckily a lot of them we were on the winning side mm-hmm. but you know thinking about on the losing side they're like what could you have done you know like you lost by 46 seconds well I did I finished Vegas to Reno and at the finish line they told me that I beat Eichner by you know by four seconds and then when it turns out and the officials all done I lost by 26 seconds yeah see that's that's it's heartbreaking, especially for a fat guy like me. It wasn't, I wasn't in his caliber, but that race course and that 560 miles, the machine I was on was faster than his. How'd it work out? Did you go this weekend? Did you guys have some fun this weekend? Oh, well, um, three wheelers are alive and well. And people just love those things right now, huh? Well, I, it would have been great. It would have been great to get, you know, we talked about you and we talked about Mike Coe coming and Jimmy White. And any of the other old three-wheeler guys that we can get 
and to bring you guys out and to let you ride the modern day stuff and to get your take on it. Um, I rode three different modern machines and two different old school. And um, the least favorite was one of the modern machines. Uh, I, I, you know, the BVC, YZ, it just wasn't for me. Yeah. Not saying that people won't love it and it's not a good bike. It just, me and it did not get along. Um, I really liked the two four strokes that I rode, um, the TPC um, TRX conversion, and then the WRYZ 450 conversion that uh, uh, Goob Tech made. A lot of fun to ride both of those two machines. The Yamaha and Honda, totally different. Uh, two different builders, two different designs, two different thought processes, yeah. um, and super close and characteristic. Did you get to throw a leg over at... I rode a 250R. An 85, 86? Yep. And, and I did not I did not prefer it. Um, the ergonomics after riding those two modern day bikes, yeah. uh, it was too small, too tight. Really? Um, yeah, it just was not set up for me. You know, I mean, we could have made some changes, maybe made it a little better. But um, for the, the, the gentleman that rode it all the time was probably 60 pounds lighter than me and... You know, a, a good three inches or four inches shorter than me, and and yeah, rode it all the time, and went faster than I did for the for sure. Um, the three fifty X was a nice machine to ride, a little darty, but yeah. pin it and just go. wasn't wasn't overpowering. I was always wondering when I see those guys talk, they're building the three fifty Xs, but when Honda, we were so focused on the two fifty R and the two hundred Xs, mm-hmm. a lot of. You know, development, you know, talking like... They missed the boat. You know, but I don't know. I wonder what Marty would say, like, why we didn't try to... Because everybody thought it was too slow. You know, like, transition the 350X and give the motor to... That was your body... That was your your Baja bike. Yeah. That was the bike you should have been racing in Baja. Because now you think everybody's on, you know, the 450s and stuff. But uh, um, I don't know what... It just didn't have the suspension. It needed a lot of work. Like even it wasn't close. I don't believe to the to the factory, you know, ProLink two fifty R. You know, I think it was. I think it's closer than you think it is. Really? I mean, I rode one with a stock suspension on it, and and I don't even know if it's been reworked. And and it rode better than the two fifty R that I rode. I'd like to see. That'd be interesting because why were we? Why was we were so focused on, you know, because the class. The 200X, mm-hmm. and then I had a 200R, and then obviously the the Premier was the 250, you know, two-stroke. Did that 200R that you rode have the rotor in the center of the of the carrier instead of out on the side? I don't know. That thing was so trick. I think that yours did. I guess somebody's told me about it. and That's the only one bike. You know, and they the, disappeared, the, didn't they? Yeah, like the guy I think that might have ended up with it was a friend of Wes McCoy's. And he lives in uh, David Eckert is his name. And uh, if anybody's listening, and he owned a boat shop, a boat dealership. And, you know, or, you know, they might have got in the dumpster. Right. You know, because that was really what they were supposed to do. Right. You know, because right. it didn't have that Honda serial number. Right. Like, I'm sure, I don't even care now, but like Marty. They just showed so much cool stuff. Probably not supposed to say it, but 
you know, Marty Road, all the Hondas, like the 250R before it came out was called it, and we have, we can verify this with Marty, but it was called, I think, an HP7. That's what you, you know, before it came out, like that's what you called it. And Marty got to ride an HP9. And it was coming. It was a 500. He rode it out in the dunes and it was top secret. He didn't I, even remember it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I believe he really did ride it. And I don't know where I remember HB9 because I was jealous. You know, he got he went out there, but it was really on the down low. But then, you know, that was the same thing. Then maybe that week, you know, the Barbara Walters thing came up. Right. You know, but Mike Coe, all them, I think. Mike remembers I, pieces of it. Wax remembers pieces of it. Marty wrote it, though. But he yeah, everybody remember. says Marty's the only guy that wrote it. Yeah, but he, Marty doesn't remember? Does not remember. I, I called wow. him up. I called him up and asked him about it. Because so. he'd be the only guy. And then and then getting back to, like, you know, when it all ended and, you know, the whole, the whole, uh, the three-wheeler thing and with Jimmy White and so many great, great guys. But I think at the end, now that I take with me to the rest of my life. But at the end, when the sport started, you know, it was King Dean and Wax. And it was just, it was Dean. He, he made, you know, the posters, everything. And, and it, when it ended from a 250R standpoint, my vote is by far, Marty was the fastest, you know, I could piss off probably all the Kawasaki guys or whatever. Right. But, but, but I, I think, you know, he, was a lot of fast guys, but and he, you could see at the last nationals, you know, he had, you know, he was clicking. Not only him working the hardest, Paul Turner, as we all know, you know, uh, all the, you know, like Carter, you know, Carter, and he 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 was clicking, right? You know, and then boom, you know how how do you think he feels? You know, I felt bad when my little program got cut, you know, or what we were doing. But it, it 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 emotionally. I mean, Marty's never one to ever say anything about anything emotional. But I think that it 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 crushed him and and turned him away from it because he wrote eighty seven, eighty eight. Never really, you know, as, as enthusiastic as he was. Uh, he did win the Mickey's in eighty nine and then was gone. I mean, well, and I think nothing against um. I think it comes up, like I say, we transitioned into four-wheelers and stuff. But right. um, still, let's go back when I'm talking three-wheelers. Right. He was the fastest man on the earth when at the very end of the three-wheeler life. Right. Like, I think it's pretty much hands down, you know, before he had to transition into a four-wheeler and obviously won. But it was it was nice to see people think, though, it was – Three-wheelers, let's face it, you know, were a lot harder to ride. Right. You know, you had to put a little, you know, four-wheelers, you had to, you know, do it. But three-wheelers were just their own special little, you know, I, I miss those things. Right. You know. You look at the trend, you look at the the best teaching thing that you can do to teach somebody how to ride a four-wheeler is to have them ride a three-wheeler. Yeah. Because it teaches body English. And one of the things that I think the younger riders today are missing his body English. They don't know how to move around as much. So it takes them so much longer to learn how to ride some of these machines where if you take them out and teach them how to ride a three-wheeler, they, they'd understand how to move. Yeah. Yeah. I just, 
You know, I hadn't ridden a three wheeler in in, in the dirt in twenty plus years. This last weekend? Yeah. And yeah. I go out on That's Sunday. That's what I'm scared of. Go out on I Saturday and ride the thing. Comes back pretty fast. Yeah. It really comes back pretty fast. Especially when you come riding up to that turn and you're trying to get it to turn and you're like, oh God, what do I do? And you just slide off to the side and it comes around and you're in the gas and, it, and you're like, oh, that's how you get it to turn. Yeah. And, uh, you know, granted, I was never on your caliber, but. I always wonder what it would be like if I would go out and ride one of those and like just how many days it would take to get. Before that thing will buck you off, you know. Like, day one. You know, day one. Yeah. But but you get on the modern day stuff, and it's so much more comfortable. Plus, you get in the, the, the four-stroke power that, that we have today. It's so roll-on. You know, the, the, the motor's design is, is pretty awesome stuff. And yeah. you're just enjoying it because you look at the length of career, you know, they're, these guys are into their 30s. You know, Chad Weenan's 38, going to be 39. Bo Barron, you know, 43 years old. Doug Eichner retired when he was almost 50, you know. Really? And, yeah, I mean, Doug won. Doug started winning most of his, his, his later titles when he was 39. Wow. Wow, wow. Yeah. You, you probably know? weren't going to do that probably on a three-word. On a two-stroke, no. You're yeah, just on the two-stroke, two yeah. I mean, Chad Reed, his career extended because it turned to four strokes. Yeah. You know? Hey, Stevie, I really want to thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me. I'd like to invite you back for a, for a second episode because I don't think that we covered enough. We got off. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, don't forget to share us with your family and friends. The podcast is available on all streaming platforms, and you can find us on social media as ATV Talk Podcast. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Rumble, and Twitter. 